Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Welcome back to Talking Tudors, episode 109. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. It's easy to do. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. May's prize is a book pack consisting of book one and two of Wendy J. Dunn's Falling Pomegranate Seeds series, The Duty of Daughters, and All Manner of Things. A huge thank you to the author for sponsoring this amazing prize. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited that joining me on the show to talk about Tudor gems and jewellery is Justin K. Prim. Justin is an American lapidary and gemologist living and working in Bangkok, Thailand. He has studied gem cutting traditions all over the world and is currently working on a book about the worldwide history of gemstone faceting and has recently submitted a paper for publishing on the history of gem cutting in London. This includes an interesting section on the Tudor gem and jewellery trade. He works as a lapidary instructor for the Institute of Gem Trading, as well as writing articles, producing videos, and giving talks about gem cutting history. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short music break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales.
welcome to Talking Tudors. Justin, how are you? Thank you. I'm doing very well. It's just turning into the rainy season here in Bangkok, so we've gone from very hot to pretty comfortable. So let's start by you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. Okay, uh, my name is Justin Prim. I'm uh, an American gem cutter. And uh, I've been living in Bangkok for the last four years, kind of having steeped myself into the world of the gem trade and gemstone cutting. I started gem cutting right around the time that I turned 30. I was in California and I, I learned how to do gem cutting. And then that led me to going to school in Thailand because there's such a big uh, gemstone trading community here. And right after I moved here, I started doing basically a kind of like a I guess what will become a lifelong research project about the history of gem cutting. And uh, I've just kind of been going ever since. And, and my love of history and my love of art and also my love of British culture has pushed me a little bit into this funny rabbit hole of Tudor art and Tudor jewelry. And yeah, so I've been thinking about that a lot in, in the last year. Fantastic. Well, I know a lot of people love, obviously, Tudor art and Tudor jewelry, just magnificent stuff. So let's dive straight in. So how important were gems and jewelry at the Tudor court? I would say they were pretty important. I know both Henry and Elizabeth, they loved gems. They loved jewels. We, we can tell this not only, you know, by seeing jewels and gems and paintings, but also just kind of looking at some of the things that were going on at the time. Like for instance, uh, Henry VIII had reserved the right of first sight on all jewels that were brought into the country. So basically he said, you know, I want, I want first dibs. If anything cool that comes in, I have the chance to buy it before anybody else gets to. And because of that, a lot of foreign artists and foreign, you know, jewelers and gem cutters and goldsmiths, they wanted to be here. And, and we can see even by like immigration records and stuff that a lot of foreign jewelers and foreign gem cutters were coming into London at that time, especially because they knew it was such a, it was such a lucrative place to be. You know, it's like if you have a king or a queen who really wants the best, most interesting stuff, you should be there. You'll, you'll make money. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like such a Henry thing to do to want first dibs on the best jewels, that's for sure. So how did these gems actually get to London? Good question. Um, you know, when we think about, you know, what we call today, like the British Empire, you know, this was really starting in Elizabeth's time, you know, before the middle of the 1500s into the right at the beginning of the 1600s, there weren't really any British uh seafaring trading companies like all of all of what became the the foundations of the british empire started around 1550s although you know for about 50 years so before that all the trading that was coming from like the far east was happening through venice or through portugal you know these are you know venice already had been trading for like 700 years before elizabeth came into power so they were like the super traders of, of Europe, you know, from the Silk Road and everything. And so once Britain had money and or well, really, once they had this sort of ambition to try and cut out the middleman, they started building up, you know, like the, the Muscovy Company and some of the other, you know, there's two or three really large trading companies. And so one of the things that they were trading, you know, of, of course, spices and textiles, but gemstones, you know, they they knew that they could go east. And, and then also, as they discovered the Americas, you know, they had emeralds and stuff coming in from the Americas. And so that's partially why England starts to become kind of wealthy and powerful. You know, before that, they were, in at least in my opinion, they were like 
chasing the rest of Europe as far as trade power goes. And so once they had their own trading companies going and England starts importing a lot of stuff, you know, we start to see more and more gems coming directly into London instead of coming into Portugal or into Venice or, or wherever else they were going into. And so as as they would come in, you know, the trading district of London was Cheapside. That's that was the medieval and, and Tudor jewelers district. And and even today, like Cheapside isn't there anymore, but there still is Cheapside Road in, in London and you can go there and, see, you know, you can't really see too much because it's pretty modern. But today, what used to be the giant, uh, basically almost like the mall, it wasn't really a mall, but, you know, we could kind of think of it as the shopping center of that time for jewelry. Today, it's like a big office building down the street from St. Mary LeBeau Church. But at that time, you know, in the early 1500s and, and, and on and on, really until the Great Fire, that was the center of the gem trade for London. And I, I found one quote because I was doing research on this last year and I found a great quote from the early 1500s. So this Italian traveler was in London and he remarked that the Cheapside Street was one of the most remarkable things that he'd seen in London. You know, he's comparing it to the shops of Milan and Rome and Venice and Florence. And he said uh, he didn't think that the magnificence of London could be found in, in those other places. So really, he's saying it's really one of the best and most sort of opulent places that you could go to buy luxury items. And, you know, it wasn't just gems and jewels. Of course, they were importing textiles and they had furs and if you could afford it, of course. But so, yeah, Cheapside was kind of the center and all the goldsmiths were there, gem cutters were there, you know, anybody who is associated with that trade. And so if you were coming in from, you know, a trading company, uh, you could then do business with those merchants and then the customers would go to those merchants as well. So that was kind of the, the middle person to, to be at. And so all the shops were kind of like along the street, no windows. So everything's kind of just shutters that would open. And then, you know, all of the shops would be identified by signs above the shop. So you had stuff like the white lion and the phoenix and the green dragon, you know, this sort of almost like what we think of as like medieval style shop names, but that was really what was going on even in the Tudor period. And, you know, you can kind of imagine like if you're in the goldsmith shop and you've got like the sound of people like kind of hammering a little bit on gold and silver and you've got the sound of the carts going by because the windows are all open and of course they want everyone to see into the shops and and try to want to buy some of whatever they're selling and then you've got some sound somewhere of like the gem cutter who's kind of like cranking away on their machine just grinding down all of these stones that are coming in from all over the place you know so they had sapphires rubies and diamonds coming in from india they had uh, rubies and spinels coming in from modern day Burma, uh, lapis and spinel coming from Afghanistan, and even some stuff that was more local, like they were getting pearls from Scotland. So that was like the, one of the major pearling places uh, of that time. Opals were coming from Hungary, and of course, garnets were coming from, from Bohemia. And, and garnets had been very famous and popular, you know, even since the early medieval times, like the Dark Age periods, we still find, you know, like the Sutton Hoo, all uh, the yes. Sutton Hoo stuff yeah. is full of Czech garnets. So they had, they definitely had that. So yeah, lots of stuff. It was, it was a rich time, you know, it's almost, they almost had as many choices as we have today for what they could put into a jewel.
Yeah, that was fascinating, Justin. I love the snapshot of Tudor Cheapside and that anecdote by that visitor. I I love all the travel diaries. I collect them whenever possible and I find them online and they are wonderful contemporary descriptions of Tudor London. So that that was really cool. I really enjoyed that. So obviously, if we look at any portrait of, you know, Tudor nobility or royalty, there is an abundance of jewels there and jewellery to marvel at. So were they actually cutting the stones? And you've kind of touched a little bit when you were describing the sounds and the noise but were they cutting them in London or were they already cut when they arrived or was it a mixture of both? It was a mixture of both and it changed over the period. You know, at the beginning of the Tudor period, I would say like there weren't really any gem cutters yet in London. Like I found one reference that said in 1501, most of the gem cutting was done outside of London. But I I think probably we have Henry VIII to thank for what's about to happen because, because of his love of, you know, opulent, luxury stuff you know all these craftsmen were coming in from all over europe and and they just stayed there you know like like they would resettle in london they would set up a shop they would try to peddle their wares you know and and some of them obviously were more successful than others but even the ones that weren't specifically doing business with the court or or with the king specifically of course there's the whole court of people that also want to look the part, you know, and and be to that status level. And then even regular people, you know, not like lower class people, but like some middle class people also kind of played that social game a little bit. And so there were a lot of different customers. And so, yeah, as as the period goes on, we start to see, you know, records of, of different people coming into London. And I think between like 1570 and 1590, there's a record of at least 138 immigrants coming in specifically around the gem and jewelry trade. And I, I know for certain 19 of them were gem cutters because the they're labeled by like what what kind of specialty they had. So some people were just doing agates and some were diamond cutters and some they were just calling stone cutters. So a lot of them were coming. Well, I mean, if we have a bit of a bigger understanding of the gem trade at that time, it's not really surprising where they're coming from. They're coming from the other major centers. So Germany was a very old gem cutting center. And so like Nuremberg and Augsburg specifically had people coming to London, lots of people from Belgium. And of course, Belgium later became the the biggest diamond importer into the world. A lot of Dutch, well, obviously Dutch and Belgium at that time were kind of the same low countries thing. But, you know, a lot of those people were already trading in gems and so they they had an established craft set up there and then and some as well from from France and Spain so there's lots of styles coming in lots of different opinions about what is a good cut or what is a good style of jewelry and when these foreigners come in they of course they bring their skills they bring their cultural preferences that are probably not exactly the same as as Londoners or as, you know, French to German or whatever. So yeah, and they would set up and then over time, they'd start taking on apprentices because they, of course, needed help. And then that was sort of just the way, you know, the goldsmiths had their apprenticeship system under the goldsmiths guild. And then the gem cutters had their sort of self-regulated apprenticeships that were not really under the watchful eye of the goldsmiths guild but still sort of under the regulations because the goldsmiths guild was really they controlled everything at that time you know they said everyone must be in cheapside and and you know we don't want anybody else doing gem trading or or jewelry outside of where we can look and regulate you know we see a lot of people in Cheapside, even living above the shops and kind of just going downstairs and and setting up shop in the morning. And so then people would do these apprenticeships, maybe around 14 years old, and 
they would be like six or seven years. Like they're pretty long apprenticeships. And some of the people that were doing them, they weren't just gem cutters or weren't just jewelers. You know, even a lot of the, the master painters that we are, we know of their works today, they even they apprenticed as goldsmiths. And so it's not really surprising. Like for me, I, I look at a lot at Tudor paintings and Renaissance paintings for, you know, try to understand what was the style at that time. And it's not surprising to me at all to see that, you know, when you look at the paintings, as you said, they're full of jewelry, but they're very specific, you know, they're very accurate, you know, when for the few pieces of Tudor jewelry that we have, we can see that they're pretty almost photorealistic, some of them depend, of course, depending on the artist, but, you know, really good depictions of not just the gold, but the cuts, you know, and for me as a gem cutter, I can look at them and I know exactly what cuts they're using. You know, I knew, I know what cuts are in style at that time. And, and they're all there in the paintings, you know, they're completely revealed if, if you're, if you're looking at the close up details. So it's, it's pretty fun to, for me at least, to, and I know for you as well, to look at these old paintings and find all the secrets that they've hidden in there, whether symbol, symbolic or actual literal pieces. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's a very timely discussion, actually, because I was just doing some research for another talk I'm doing about Nicholas Hilliard. And of course, he's best known as, you know, this incredible miniaturist or limna, if you want to use the language of the day. But he was, of course, from a, he was a goldsmith himself and was from a family of goldsmiths, his father, his grandfather, and I don't know how way back it goes. So it's really interesting. Um, to know that they, yeah, they weren't just goldsmiths, they could be artists as well, like he was. I want to hear a little bit more about the actual goldsmiths who were making these these incredible objects. Obviously, some were coming overseas, some like Hilliard, he was born in Exeter. So tell us a little bit more about the goldsmiths. Yeah, so the goldsmiths were also, you know, with the gem cutters and the merchants, they're all there in Cheapside together. And the goldsmiths were were really well organized. I mean, they, they had a guild they had a livery company. So they were really one of the first of, you know, maybe I think, what is it, 13 livery companies that had, you know, the charter of the king to be able to do business. And so their their charter goes all the way back to, I think, the 1320s. And, you know, and I've looked at some of those, they have the record books still going back to the 1320s. They're all handwritten and hard, very hard to read now. But it's amazing what what still exists. But so they were very strict about rules. If it's gold, it must be gold, and we're gonna we're gonna test it. You know, no synthetic gemstones, no fakes, and of course, people would always break the rules, and then they would go around and find them every year. But and so yeah, some of the people were coming from Europe, and the same with the gem cutting. Their their styles were meshing with what was already going on in England and what had already been going on. You know, since even medieval times. One of the interesting things is, you know, a lot of times there will be a difference between like a designer and the actual craftsman himself. Like for instance, Hans Holbein the Younger, you know, we kind of, I think we mostly think of him as a painter, you know, or or like um, a designer at least, you know, and, and he's got a book that I think was made after he died. It's just the jewelry book. And if you go through the book, it's full of all these different designs and they're really well rendered. You know, I mean that you can see what kind of stones he's using and pearls and the kind of gold work. And you know, we can get an idea about the styles of the time and what was in, what was popular. And, you know, he's left a lot of stuff. And, and specifically, he was doing a lot of stuff for Henry VIII. You know, he he was designing jewels that Henry was giving as gifts. And, you know, sometimes there'd be like interlocking initials. And, and even some of the pieces that I don't think they still exist, but at least some of the pieces that are in the jewelry book have 
mystery initials, you know, initials of people that we were not exactly sure who is he giving this to. So he was obviously, I mean, we know he was having a lot of affairs and, you know, he was having fun and he was giving a lot of gifts, personalized gifts. And so, yeah, Hans Holbein was one of the people that was, you know, designing that stuff. If you just want to think about the jewelry of the time and, and the people making it, you know, they're looking at the world around them and they're making stuff as status symbols. So it's not, I would, I would say it's not necessarily so different than today you know if you want to go and dress up you're going to put on extra layers and you know a nice outfit and some rings or some earrings or, or whatever it is and uh you know we see a lot of that at least in the paintings and and some of the stuff that has still survived sadly not much has you know they had this habit of recycling everything and and reusing everything and that wasn't really a tutor thing necessarily that continued on i mean even even when when we look at more modern paintings like even all the way up to like the 1800s we can find paintings of people at different coronations and in the vna they've got painting and you can see all the jewels and the jewels are in the vna still some of them but they don't look exactly the same they've reworked them they've reset them and so they they were always doing this, you know, even the like, for instance, the, the crowns, you know, they would rework them for each monarch. And of course, when Elizabeth came, you know, Henry's crown's not going to fit on Elizabeth's head. So they're going to rework it and maybe use the same jewels or maybe use different jewels, depending on, you know, what they have at the time and who's the goldsmith and, and everything like that. So it's it's quite fascinating. And, you know, when we look at like, especially like some of Holbein's jewelry designs, you know, we can really get a sense because they're in color and you, you, you can really get a sense of what was popular and, you know, some of these different ways of like working letters into the thing. You know, I mean, when we think about Anne Boleyn's iconic bee necklace, I'm not, I actually don't know the story behind that. You, maybe you do, but it's not that unusual to, I think, have some letters integrated into a jewelry, sometimes more, you know, obviously, and sometimes a little bit more subtly, but they liked, they liked their symbolism in there. Absolutely. Yeah. They loved doing the initials and the intertwined initials, one of their favorites. So I'd love to hear about one of your favorite pieces. There are bits you've said a lot has been lost, unfortunately. A lot was recycled and changed. So we probably wouldn't even know that some of the gems are still, you know, in a certain piece that came from something else, but some does survive. So what's a favorite of yours that's a Tudor jewelry? I think for me, I was thinking about this a lot. I think my absolute favorite is it's a pendant. And I'm, I'm really like a ring guy. I love rings. And I, I always am looking for an awesome Tudor ring. But actually, the thing that really has caught my eye, there's a pendant in the VNA. It's a, it's a gold kind of double uh, jewel pendant. So there's a peridot, there's a garnet, and then there's a sapphire bead hanging from the bottom. And there's a few reasons why I really like this pendant. One, as a gem cutter, I look at the gems and they're very big they're very um visible and and they're cut in a really weird way we have a general idea about what were the styles of gem cutting at that time but it's a very much evolving art you know especially then faceting was very new uh in the you know starting in the 1400s in the 1500s it was still very new and some of the designs in this in the cutting style of this pendant i've just really not seen before but the the other interesting thing about it so the way that the setting is done, the gems are, or the setting is open in the back. So as you wear it on your necklace, the gems are touching your skin. And so this kind of goes into this whole other idea of like that gems have a sort of divine magical power that will help to protect you from different things. And you know, th this idea is pretty old, but not only did they 
leave the backs open and, and, and it's obviously very intentional because they also engraved almost you know what we would now maybe call like magic words into the back of of the setting in latin and, and so there's two different ones one of them is if i can pronounce this correct anani septa day which evidently was a very common invocation for warding off epilepsy. So this is around the back of the top gym. And then the, around the back of the bottom gym, it says detragrammata, which is kind of like a alteration of the tetragrammaton, which is an invocation of God. You know, they're, invo they're invoking God and Mary and Jesus, again, for protection. So they've kind of got the, the gemstones in there for protection. And then they've got engraved in the back, God, please prevent me from getting epilepsy or, or whatever else they were worried about. So for me, that one is, is it's so cool and you can go see it. It's in the VNA, it's on display. So I've seen it like three times and every time I'm just like, wow, okay, this is, you know, it's, it's pretty big too. So it, it's re it's, it's easy to appreciate. Yeah, that sounds great. I'll have to get a, a photo of it so I can share with our listeners. I mean, I love that, that it's got those engravings on the back. That's really interesting. And I just want to look a little deeper about something you just said there, which was those sayings on the back and, and the fact of it being on the skin and those ideas around the powers, I suppose, that gems could have. So what, what about the superstitions around gemstones? Was this a medieval idea or did people in Tudor times also believe that gemstones held, let's call them magical powers? Yeah, I mean, the, the thought of magical powers is it's quite old. I mean, really, we can go back to the earliest books of about stones, which is thousands of years, maybe. But it was definitely popular in medieval times. And it really didn't fall out of favor in Tudor times. I mean, you know, we think about the Tudor period as, as like a time of religious change, right? The Catholic connection is being broken and the Church of England is getting formed. But the fact that we're kind of coming out of, of, of a Catholic worldview, if we think about the Catholicism at the time, it was full of probably what we today consider like strange rituals and rites. You know, they were doing stuff back then that we don't really still do today. And they were kind of like Tudor medicine or, or Renaissance medicine. It's not very good compared to, you know, their concept of it doesn't really make too much sense by today's um, standards. And and the same thing when it comes to like superstition, you know, they they were kind of under this idea that there were angels and demons around them all the time and that and that they needed to be praying, you know, like the, like we know about these books of hours. I think I think Anne Boleyn has a book of hours that still exists somewhere. And so people were praying at all these different hours really to kind of keep demons away and keep themselves sort of pure so they wouldn't want to do bad things. The superstition of stones was there as well. It had been there. It stayed. I mean, it really stayed all the way until probably the 1700s in England when, you know, we sort of have the the enlightenment and stuff and science really is kind of picking up some steam. But so, yeah, lots of people thought that different gemstones would do different things. You know, some would protect you from snakes. Some would protect you from poison. Some would protect you from, I don't know, well, ep epilepsy, you know, as we just saw from that, that other one. One of the big things that people were really scared about was poison. There was a few different a few different remedies that they would prescribe for poison. One of my favorite ones, well, th yeah, there was a few. Sometimes they would use ruby and sometimes they would use emeralds. Sometimes they would do all different things and they would do different things with them. Sometimes it was okay to just wear them in the necklace like like the one I was just speaking about. But sometimes they actually wanted to grind it up and put it into 
water or put it into food like like modern medicine today they really thought gemstones were a medicine from from the divine to to bring almost like div divinity into us one of my favorite examples of that idea is bezoar stones so there's lots of bezoar stones i mean maybe if you've never heard of a bezoar stone it sounds really rare but when you go into museums of renaissance artifacts and tudor artifacts there are actually lots of bezoars and so the bezoar is kind of like you know we know about in humans like kidney kidney stones and gallbladder stones, you know, this unpleasant thing that we don't really like. And, and animals have those too. So they would find these basically calcium deposits inside of a dead animal. You know, they'd slaughter them. And then inside of the you know, whatever part of the body those come out of, they'd find these little stones. And they, they thought that they were an antidote against poison. Elizabeth actually had one. And there's a there's a record of it. I don't think it still exists, but they describe it as it's like a small stone hanging on a gold chain that's on a bracelet. So basically, she could, I don't know if she was wearing it a lot. But you know, if you think about sitting down at dinner, and you could put a little bit in your drink, you could maybe dip the entire thing in your drink, which I know that was a popular way. But the uh, the description of this bezoar setting said that the stone was partially spent, meaning they had been kind of like grinding it off a little bit. So maybe, you know, like nutmeg, you would grind it off over your drink and, you know, then you could have wine and for sure there was no poison. The coolest thing about the bezoar for me, though, is actually modern scientists have studied bezoars and found out that actually they are an antidote against certain types of poison. So this wasn't actually, you know, most of the other ones were superstition. But in the case of the bezoar, when you dissolve it into something that has arsenic inside of it, the arsenic is removed or i don't know if it's dissolved or just deactivated but it was actually true you can actually neutralize poisons with the bezoar uh, and then the other funny thing with the bezoar for anybody who's ever seen harry potter that's probably the most famous bezoar in history when ron drinks the love potion and then he ends up trying to drink the antidote to to the love potion and and gets poisoned and then you know harry's like going through the drawers looking for the stone and he sticks the stone in ron's mouth and and he neutralizes the poison that's what that was so even queen elizabeth had one of those in her medicinal cabinet somewhere and, and was i guess was using it pretty regularly that's really cool thinking of elizabeth sitting at dinner and checking with her <laughs> bracelet that's really interesting so it's not like a prevention that one's more like a neutralizing because i know they had other things like a detecting i think you know, they, they were using diamonds oh were they some, right some i think way. i heard of unicorn horn that wasn't obviously unicorn horn yeah. but it was narwhal or something that they thought also had a kind of detecting power so they were yeah. obviously using a few different things detect neutralize you know that's really yeah, well, i mean really whatever and you you know you think about the culture of that time you know is if elizabeth dies it's a big deal you know so any anything that they can do whether it's astrology because you know they were definitely doing astrology and you know john d and all that you know and trying to find the the right day to do different things on with a magical or divine you know however you want to put it but it's basically a magical day or a magical tool whatever you can use use it because just in case you know now, I know, uh, Justin, that you've got an exciting article being published soon. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, th that's kind of how this little rabbit hole started for me as far as the Tudor stuff goes. I had this idea already that I wanted to kind of understand the history of gem cutting in London. And I, I went there, I mean, I've been there lots of times, but in 2018, I got to go and meet a couple of really old gem cutters, like 
70 plus years old who are still using like almost like Victorian era technology, like these hand crank machines that don't use electricity. And so I, I got so excited from meeting those guys. I was like, I must go back and, and do research, you know, and I, I was able to get a grant from the Society of Antiquaries in London to go back for two months. So in 2019, I got to spend two months in England and, and you know, not have to worry about the financial side of it. And so I was going through, you know, all the museums in London. I was I went up to the Midlands and was checking out some of the stuff up there. I went up to Whitby, you know, which is another kind of important gemstone locality where all the jet was coming from at that time or really of all the times and so i wrote this 30 page article you know it's really just like a story of gem cutting in england from the 12th century all the way until today so it's quite in depth it's about 30 pages and so i was able to submit it to the journal of gemology in london and we're just finishing up the peer review process now so but they've told me yeah that it's going to get published in two parts um sometime before the end of the year so if anybody's looking at the journal of gemology and wants to know more about gem cutting and jewelry in london there's going to be a two-parter it's pretty cool because normally they don't do two-part articles so i was like it's 30 pages can we do two and they said okay that's pretty cool it's a it's a cool story so then nobody really knows about it so it's quite fun and there's a, yeah there's a good bit about the Tudor period in there. I mean, there's a whole sort of sub chapter where I just talk about the 1500s up to the 1600s and what was going on and the technology that they had at that time and stuff like that. So it's for me, at least it's quite fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And how cool to get to spend two months just researching something that you love and that you're yeah. interested in. That That's amazing. Yeah, it was um, a dream and, trip for sure. Yeah. And just in time, hey, before everything locked down, that was lucky. Yes. yes. I, I'm just like, wow, okay. If I would have waited six more months, I don't think I could have done that. So in general, if people would just want to find out a little bit more about you and about your work, where can they go? I've got a bunch of articles on my website that are basically gem and jewelry history oriented. So that's just my name justinkprim.com. And, and since COVID started, I've been really focusing on videos because I'm also stuck at home like everybody yeah. else. So if you go to facetinghistory.com, it'll take you to all my videos and stuff. And then Instagram, my name again, Justin K. Prim. I'm regularly looking at paintings and jewelry and posting them on there. You know, like, you know, vintage antique stuff all the way back to Renaissance times. So I'm kind of like posting modern and old stuff as well. So if people are interested in jewelry history, they might find that interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll put links to those in our show notes. Now, I, th I think you've heard some episodes of Talking Tudors before, Justin, but at the end, the when I have guests on for the first time, I like to do what I call a little game of 10 to go. So this is just 10 quick questions to get to know you a little bit better. So are you ready for that? I'm ready. Let's go. <laughs> All right. So if you could visit anywhere in the world right now, where would you go and why? Definitely would be Venice. I, I've never been to Venice. It's It's been on the top of my list for a few years. As a historian, I really want to check out the, the history of the art and the history of the gems in Venice, but also I just think it must be a beautiful place. And I heard since COVID started, like all the dolphins came back into Venice yeah. because they're not going on the, the, the canals anymore. So I think if I could go during COVID, I would. That would be a perfect time when nobody else is there and just walk around Venice and imagine that I'm in the 1400s or whatever. Yeah, that would be so cool, actually, because normally it's so hard to get any photos without you know throngs of people. So that would be awesome. And you sound like a pretty talented guy, but what if you wanted to learn a new skill or maybe you, you've got 
your eye on something, what would it be? Actually, yeah, I, I really want to learn um, 3D modeling. You know, I'm looking at a lot of old technology, you know, old machines and stuff from the Renaissance and even like late medieval. You know, these are things that don't exist anymore other than in drawings. I'd love to be able to three-dimensionally animate them and make some videos just to show people, you know, this is how they could cut gems. Like in, in Tudor times, what were they yeah, using? Yeah. You know, we, we don't have that anymore, but we, we know what it is. If I could just make a video of this hand cranking guy, you know, but that's a, it's a lot of work to learn that. So I might just subcontract <laughs> that to somebody else. Yeah, and I, I do love any sort of reconstruction. I'm a huge fan when they reconstruct the, you know, palaces that are now gone, all that sort of thing. I think it, not all of us can visualize as well as others. So that's really helpful. Yeah. And what about books? What's your favorite genre of books? I am definitely a lover of sci-fi and fantasy. And I'm, I usually try and alternate if I can between fiction and nonfiction. So if I'm, because I'm cutting a lot, I mean, I'm a gem cutter by trade. So I'm listening to a lot of audiobooks. So I usually get my fantasy fill on audiobooks. And then at night, I've got like a, you know, real books or a Kindle. And so I'm going through more recent, you know, sort of scholarly research stuff and stuff that I'm looking at for my, uh, for my own research book and stuff like that. So yeah, history, obviously. But yeah, I'm a pretty big fantasy fan as well. Awesome. And what do you do when you're not gem cutting to relax and unwind? Well, I would have said before traveling, I, I was traveling a lot, but I think no one's traveling now. No. Um, since COVID started, we have started maybe an unhealthy addiction with Mario Kart. So my <laughs> wife and I have just we have the projector set up and you know, we can play on the computer and we've just been battling for the last year on Mario Kart, you know, just to, yeah, to wind down at night. Yeah, that sounds like fun. And what movie or show have you watched more than once? Well, to keep it Tudor related, I really love both of the Queen Elizabeth movies, the first one and Reign of, what is it, Reign of Power. Those ones are fun. I don't know. I think they're vaguely historically accurate, <laughs> but they're definitely fun, you know, just to get into the mood. Um, and I've definitely watched both of those like at least three times. I'm also really interested in costuming. I don't really do it too much because I'm not so good, but sometimes I just like to look at at least other people's ideas of what the costumes look like and, you know, get a sense for how it all came together with the jewelry and stuff like that. Justin, if you didn't need to sleep at night, what would you do with all that extra time? Hmm, I'm not sleeping in that much at, at, <laughs> oh, okay. at, much at all anyway, but no, mostly I'm just completely entranced by the research that I've been doing. I mean, COVID's really put me into such a deeper space to just not be bothered with the outside world and just go super deep into the research. So I'm trying to finish up a couple of books. And then I, I finished up that research paper for the London project. But yeah, most of the time when I'm not working, I'm staying up late at night going into like archive.org and looking at old books and whatever I can get my hands on from a distance. And uh, I just can't get enough. So that's, it's a really nerdy lifestyle. No, I love it. And that's good to hear because obviously some people have gone the opposite, which is just being too distracted by what's going on to be able to, to dive into their research. So I'm glad to hear that it's going well for you. That's excellent. Justin, name a person that inspires you. It can be any, it can be someone from the past or someone current, contemporary, and why? Well, I guess I, I guess I'll keep it personal and say I've been very lucky to have a lot of really great mentors in, in my industry. And when I moved to Bangkok, I befriended a lot of people that were already very much deep into the world of research and and professional work. And, you know, some of those mentors who have already written a lot of books have really helped me to improve my work and, and just get 
just get comfortable being, you know, in another country and in a new trade. Cause I wasn't, I wasn't in this trade before, you know, before five or six years ago. So really my mentors have, are constantly personally inspiring me like every week. And when, and usually when I make a dumb mistake, like I put up a dumb YouTube video and then one of them will email me and say, you need to really take that down. You made a big mistake, redo it and then put it back. And I'm like, okay, thank you. You've saved me being embarrassed by too many people. Yeah, that's so true. And I think a mentor in regardless of what you're doing or researching or what work you're doing is so important, isn't it? I found that even just in, in the world of history that I'm in, got some really fantastic women mentors and they're just so inspiring and they, you know, make you want to work harder and achieve more things. So it's fantastic. And that kind of links yeah. nicely to the next thing I want to ask you, which is what's a really great piece of advice? You've given us one there, but what's a really great piece of advice that you've received that you're willing to share with us? I guess the favorite thing that my, my main mentor told me you know speaking about research and and like how to work relevantly he said writing something original means you need to figure out where does knowledge end you know you need to read everything that's ever been written about whatever you're trying to talk about you figure out where the end of that thing is and then you go to the next step and i always think about that you know i think about all the books that i've got on my shelf and what's not in them and then i then that's how i've kind of figured out the book that I wanted to work on. And I said, okay, nobody's talking about the history of colored stones. You know, there's books about diamonds, there's books about jewelry, but you know, you want to understand like sapphires in the world of the Tudors or whatever. It, there's very few books and those ones are great, but there's still so much more that hasn't been said. That was a great advice for me because it showed me where I needed to go. So just a question that's just popped into my head because of what you said, are you working on a book at the moment? Is that what you're also doing? Yeah, yeah. I've been working on this for four years and I think it's almost done. I mean, I thought it was done when COVID started and then I stopped working on it for a while and it's it's just about there. I just have a couple little research trips I need to do to, to France because there's just a little gap in my in the end of the story. But yeah, I, I, it's basically an overview of the history of gem cutting from about 1380 until today, just in Europe. But but it it goes country by country and just looks at how it how it all how it all happened basically and yeah i'm just missing this last little bit of the story and i can't finish it without that oh, but i need yeah. to go i you know sometimes people just don't want a zoom call they they you need to go there you know if you don't know them very well you need to go there and right now it's not possible so yeah, yeah. so oh, maybe well, in a year exciting. Yeah. your listeners will find they'll see a book somewhere and <laughs> it'll be that book but yeah, still in the works. Well, that sounds exciting. And lucky last question, what's something that you're looking forward to in the near future? That's one. <laughs> what's another thing? Um, travel, definitely travel. Like I am itching to go back to now I'm really looking at America and American history of, of cutting and I've got this whole trip in in the in sort of New England planned out oh. and I'm just waiting for the COVID restrictions and in the and, and to be safe, you know, I don't want to just be yeah, yeah. going around all crazy but now that there's some vaccines i cannot wait to get out of thailand and and just get back into the primary research and just meet, meeting people you know it's yeah. i'm sure we all feel the same you haven't seen too many people in the last year so i'll be happy to get out and see that now the very 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 last thing that i like to ask my guests is for a tutor takeaway so this is something for our listeners to go and have a look at after the episode sometimes people give book suggestions movies to watch songs to listen to do you have a tutor takeaway for us yeah i'll give you a couple well i mentioned already that peridot and garnet pendant so you can actually yes. go check that out now it's it's on the vna website I think if you just type in peridot and garnet pendant it might pop up but the number is m 242-1975. So I think if you type that in, it will 
it will pop right. up. But as far as books go, there's a couple that I really, well, there's one that I really like, and then there's one new one that just came out, so I'll share. Uh, one of them is called The Cheap Side Horde. So The Cheap Side Horde is a little bit later than Tudor. It's, I mean, it could, some of the stuff in there could be Tudor, but the book is really great. It's all about how they found this sort of 16, early 1600s treasure chest, basically under a floor in Cheapside in London. And it, it, it basically sat there since they don't really know, but probably the early 1600s. And, and it has like over a thousand items, you know, gold, jewelry, unset gems. And the book is great. You know, it's written by the curator of the, of the Museum of London. And they actually did a, an exhibition of it some years ago. And I think it's supposed to come back it's only ever been ex exhibited once, which is crazy because it's probably the greatest, you know, next to like the next to Sutton Hoo, it's probably one of the greatest things that's ever been found in England and it's never been on display other than once. So they told me they're building a whole new museum. And when that yeah. museum comes there, it's going to have its own space. But for now, you, you can't see any of it, which is crazy. So you, you should get the book, London's Lost Jewels. There's lots of really nice photos. And then there's a new one that just came out and I've only, I've only skimmed it, but it's brand new. It's called A Marvel to Behold by Timothy Schroeder. And the subtitle is Gold and Silver at the Court of Henry VIII. So I haven't read it yet, but it looks to be really cool. It's a pretty big book. It's not so much about jewelry, but more like gold plate and silver plate, but it does overlap into the world of goldsmithing and jewelry. So who was the um, author, Justin? Timothy Schroeder. I just saw it in a I just saw a book review of it in the Jewelry History Today newsletter and I was like, oh, what is this? Tudor Gold? I am thinking a lot about Tudor Gold right now. Let's <laughs> let's let's just check it out. So I ordered it, so we'll see. But that might be an interesting one if you want to read yeah. something that's really just come out. That's fantastic. I had to be honest, I had not heard of that one. So I'm immediately every time I record an episode, I end up adding to, you know, I say I'm not buying any more books this week. I'm not buying any more books. And then I end up buying another book. So that's great. Anyway, all good. That's okay, fantastic. Some, sorry. I just bought I just bought like 20 books and <gasps> sent them to my mom. And then she's gonna resend them to me. So I definitely feel your your That's addiction. a lot. I've never bought 20, I don't think, at the same time. So that, that's a record to work up to, I think. Some of them are really small, so I, they're not, you know, they're not like full size books, but some of them are full size books, but they're all old. They're all like from the 30s and 40s. So I'm like looking that's for my, my primary sources. Yeah, that's and I love old books because you never know. I was yeah. I posted something about a book I bought that had an inscription in it, which I love when they they've got little messages. But then it also had like newspaper articles and other cool yeah. stuff. And then someone told me that there's a book now I can't remember the title, but you might like this about all the interesting things that have been found inside of books. So I was oh, like, wow. oh my god, <laughs> there's no end yes. to it. <laughs> the other thing I really love with old books, you know, when you get really like if you go into the British. The, the British Library, you know, and, and you can look at some of the really old books, you know, they've got such an interesting smell, yeah. you know, they, they have this, vin you know, it's because it's not paper, it's, you know, it's basically animal products, and it has such a unique smell. I yeah. love the smell of really old books. It's so, it's so unique. Well, Justin, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking Tudors with us. Well, thanks for having me. I've I've been enjoying your podcast while I cut, so it'll be kind of funny to be on the other side of it. <laughs> you can listen to yourself. That sounds great. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. 
Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetutortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tutors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.